data stories number nine here. Enrico, as usual, and Moritz. Hi, Moritz. Hi there. How are you? Good, good. Bit uh, tired. Uh, I have a cold too, but other than that, I'm really good. Okay, great. I just come from a huge dinner. I hope I will manage to record this episode. Um, Okay, we have another special guest here today. It's great to have Daniel Fisher, who is a researcher from Microsoft. Hi, Daniel. Hey, good morning, Enrico. Good morning, Moritz. Hey there. How are you, Daniel? I'm great. It's early in the morning out here, so I've gotten started on my day. You are from Seattle. You are talking from Seattle today, right? I'm over on the Microsoft campus in Redmond, Washington, just outside of Seattle. Yeah. Great. Okay. So let me just explain. Um, so Daniel Fisher, for those of you who don't know him, is a researcher at Microsoft and is doing research uh, in the area of information visualization and human-computer interaction. And uh, we invited him specifically today because he's also for the first year this uh, for the first time this year at this week is chair of the of an industry track, which is a new thing in the this week conference, and we we would really like to discuss about opportunities between finding bridges between what happens in academia and what happens in industry and between practitioners. We have been touching this topic many times during the during the podcast and we really wanted to organize an, one episode uh, specifically on this topic. And uh, we think that Daniel is the right person since this, this new thing is happening right now. There is an industry track uh, finally in this week, which is uh, a pretty academic conference. So Daniel, do you want to introduce yourself for a moment and explain to us what, what is your background, what you are doing, and maybe tell us something also about this industry track afterwards? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, as Enrico said, I'm at Microsoft Research. Microsoft Research is an odd little organization. It kind of hangs off the side of Microsoft, and we're shaped half like an industrial department, half like an academic department. That means that we publish papers and we show up at conferences and give a lot of the intellectual property that we create away. We share it with as many people as possible. But at the same time, we're also working with the product groups, trying to help them anticipate how the next few years are going to look, trying to talk about exciting technologies that they might want to keep their eyes open for, and paying attention to what happens at conferences so that we can be sharing sort of what the leading edge thoughts are. My particular area is information visualization. So in academia, of course, I publish papers about concepts and ideas and information visualization we've been interested in. Meanwhile, I work closely with the product groups looking at the problems and challenges that they've got. Microsoft has something like a hundred different, different pieces of software that in some form or another can create some sort of visualization. You know about the big ones. They're some of the biggest information visualization tools on the market, Excel, for example, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but sure. it's also tucked into PowerPoint and some of our, and all of our online properties and MSN money. And if you go to Bing search, you can get little spark lines of stuff and visualizations are kind of everywhere. So there's a lot of people to talk to and there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out what the best way to represent the data that they're creating is. That's fantastic. And can I ask you right away, uh, what's the level of, uh, do you 
people do, do you guys on Microsoft Microsoft Research have a tight relationship with people who are in the product area or is it something that you are more working on your research and then eventually maybe mm -hmm. somebody picks up on what you do or different researchers pick different strategies uh, the bridge between Microsoft Research and the product groups is really variable we At times it's gone very well, at times it's gone poorly, um, and some of the connections are very strong. So for example, our database group has historically done a great job of working very closely with the SQL team. And a lot of the high technology that's in SQL Server today are things that were code actually written by the SQL team in Microsoft Research. On the other hand, um, some of the teams have more have impress uh, sorry have a response that's more in sharing ideas or discussing thoughts so for example um, some of the stuff that we saw with connect wasn't entirely uh, the skeleton recognition code came directly from Microsoft research but the work with uh, camera and some of the ideas around how the connect can be built and some of the underlying technologies came from discussions with, not necessarily implementations of, people like Andy Wilson and Jorge Banco, who went out and had done cool demonstrations that showed just how awesome it would be if we had this technology, which were able to drive the product group and influence the product group to build that cool thing. Mm -hmm. So there's a wide variety. Uh, one way you can find out a little bit about this is that every year we have a uh, internal company event called TechFest, and some of the best TechFest posters get published to the outside world, you can find a number of different news articles about some of the most interesting stuff that was coming out of MSR. And if you go back about four or five years to TechFest from, oh, 2004, 2005, you'll start seeing some of those things beginning to creep their way into products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not everything. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, sure. That's sure. interesting. Uh, concerning data visualization specifically, is there a current trend of what, let's say, the product side? Um, would ask for from you as a researcher or what is the let's say the, the common feedback you get well so for example on the Excel team they've been thinking a lot there's a new version of office that's shortly going to come out mm -hmm. and um, there's been a lot of discussion about what the set of visualizations that Microsoft should include in the new office sure and the default um, <laughs> right what and the defaults will be yeah, that's exactly. a really, it's, a, it's a big issue of course yeah, yeah. Um, Similarly, uh, we have a product called SQL Crescent. Um, sorry, it came out under the title PowerView. I apologize. It was publicized okay. under both names. Mm -hmm. PowerView is an interactive visualization environment that hybridizes some of the best points of SharePoint, which gives you sort of the Google Docsy reach mm -hmm. in there and directly mess with the data experience, combined with some of the best aspects of like the Tableau-like interact drop fields on and get a visualization mm -hmm, mm -hmm. combined with some of the best of Excel. Um, one of their, some of their questions were also what sort of visualization should we include? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we what, had actually, what chart types more or less, uh, what chart types, but also what sort of interactions should we be thinking about? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, some of their questions were when you're pumping a whole lot of data points over the internet, what's the best way to transfer them? Do I transfer the points? Do I transfer the GIF images of the points? And what are the trade-offs of doing those? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not going to take credit in any way for any of the decisions they made. I'm just going <laughs> to say that like 
you know, they spent some time talking to us and trying to find out what's out there on the, uh, you know, what's out there. And we were able to say, hey, look, mm-hmm. at the last Viz Week, there was this team that was talking about D3. And here's the cool things about that toolkit. I know that there's actually some teams that are using D3. And conversely, here's some people who are out there building systems that sent GIFs over the internet. And here's the trade-offs that they experience. And mm-hmm. here's, the co- here's how they solve the interactivity problems. Mm-hmm. And so that team was able to make somewhat more informed decisions. Sometimes we think of it as stepping on the landmine so that they don't have to. So you're sort of in yeah. this uh, in an expert consultant role, more or less, for, for these more uh, um, generic product teams? That's one of the many mm-hmm. forms. Mm-hmm. Another one, of course, is that sometimes the product teams approach us and we actually build technologies directly for them and transfer them over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the ones that we've had the most success with, for better or worse, are internal tools, so they might take a couple years to get out. But, oh, actually, here's a great example. Um, Tim Dwyer, who uh, you may recognize from the University of Monash, came over as a visiting researcher to Microsoft Research and then has switched over to the Visual Studio team. It must be a complete coincidence that during his time on the Visual Studio team, they have suddenly started producing a number of different graph layout algorithms that are used so developers can see the shape of their code and their code interdependencies. Mm-hmm. In, um, unfortunately, I don't remember what the external code name that that went out under was. But there's a number of features in Visual Studio that are basically direct applications of the graph layout research that Tim had been doing at Microsoft Research. Okay, that's that's really interesting. And this is related to another question that came into my mind. At the beginning, you mentioned uh, um, you mentioned within Microsoft people who have been dealing with who have been doing research in the area of databases for instance. Mm-hmm. And to me, it looks like databases is one of those areas where historically there has been a lot of uh, good relationship between, a very tight relationship between what people need in industry and what researchers do to address the the, the big issues, the big questions that industry has, right? And one thing that I always ask myself, where are the big questions in industry related to visualization that researchers will, should try to address. I think in a way there is some sort of mismatch or it's not as direct as in other fields like in, in databases or for instance also data mining, which is like, hey guys, look, I need a new index structure to make these databases faster for this kind of queries, right? It looks to me that it's much, much harder in visualization. Do you have the same feeling, Daniel? Or in some ways, it's I have only my perception of the problem. <laughs> I'd almost completely disagree, actually, and I'm happy to debate it either way. But <laughs> a different Great. possible take would be that information visualization tends to produce these tools that can be used across the field and inside as well as outside computer science. Yeah, it's true that there is no generic product that carries the name, you know. Well, there's a number of visualization products, but there's not an entire category in the same way that there is database products. Mm. But just as database researchers, you know, sometimes they'll generate an indexing scheme, but a lot of the work that that database researchers are doing is stuff that they can't necessarily apply to today's database or any, or necessarily any existing database, but they're sort of laying out a, if someday we have a database that has the following structure, then we'll be able to apply the interesting additional indexes to it. They then have to go out and create a, you know, a database company or a database organization that will actually produce that. Um, mm-hmm. 
And they get there eventually. I mean, Avertica is a wonderful example of sort of like, hey, this idea of calm-oriented database was created and a decade later, there was a number of products around it. But uh, in contrast, the stuff that we're doing at InfoViz can be often picked up by someone at the New York Times and might appear in the next three to four months inside a newspaper, in a product, on a website somewhere. One of yeah. the wonderful things about InfoViz is that it's incredibly applicable. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Maybe we should clarify. But so our plan for today is also to discuss a bit the, the potential, uh, let's say, gaps between practical applications and research or academia and the practitioners, because this topic came up uh, quite a couple of times in our podcast. And uh, it's great to hear, Daniel, that that I think you have already a practice established where you have a lot of exchange going on between the two sides. Um, but I think for many of us, uh, we are maybe located on one of the two sides and sort of looking over to the other one, like, <laughs> you know, with a bit uh, from a distance and not sure mm -hmm. about the other party. And and because you mentioned this, uh, something presented at WISWIC could show up in the New York Times three months later. I think it, it would be great, but often it It doesn't happen for a couple of reasons. It could be interesting to to explore that a bit. Why why these things don't happen as often as we as we would like them to? I guess. I I'd be delighted to. I have to say again, I find this sort of startling. Um, Vizweek is one of the most applied conferences that I've ever been involved in. To give you some of my own background, I had started off and did much uh, did a lot of work in the CSCW. Computer supported collaborative work community. Is that your original background, sort of? Or? It was, yeah. Oh, yeah. My oh, dissertation research looked at social networks over email, and mm -hmm. a big part of that was visualizing them, and that's sort of how I got sucked into the InfoViz community. Sure. But one of the things that about CSCW is I do a fantastic study of how people are doing things on Facebook today. It builds on our theoretical sociological knowledge about how people interact with each other online or how people interact with each other through computer systems. But it might be years before anyone even figures out how to pick that up. When even when people are talking directly about technical systems, you know, the number of large-scale CSCW systems is, you know, it's the set of email, it's the set of IM, it's the hmm. Facebooks of the world, there's a bunch of others. Sure. But again, applying that stuff takes a very long time. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. can't just pick it up at the New York Times and throw it into a web article and call it a day. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you need a whole framework just to get started, basically. Yeah, exactly. yeah that, that's a great thing about visualization, yeah. But let, maybe talking about algorithms. So I think one of the really the the key moments was when Marcus Vescom took the tree map algorithm and made that news map, right? So he, he took data from Google News. I don't know, that was maybe 2003 or something like that. And he took Ben Schneiderman's tree map algorithm and came up with this totally creative use of that algorithm that was also really well designed and so on. And I wish that would happen more often, like that, you know, people who have a strong design skill or a good idea from an application point of view are just able to take an algorithm and, and, you know, mash it up with something else. But in my experience, um, research algorithms are often not that f that freely available as you would expect them. So sometimes you have implementations online, sometimes you don't. But um, mm. cases like D3 or um, let's say all the Jeff Hare did, where you have these really well-designed frameworks that are like invite you to use them, um, are in my, from my perspective, 
it, it could happen more often, right? So, for instance, I tried to do something with uh, Voronoi tree maps. I know you did something in that area too. I think really? Enrico as well. Enrico? No, Vor I didn't. No, but uh, they come no, from Constance originally, from right? Constance, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had a hard time finding an implementation, actually. And they have been around for years. And I, I couldn't even find a simple one that I could extend or something. It's, there's no code online. And it was, I was very disappointed there. Well, I will tell you, it's agonizingly painful to build those things. The yeah, algorithmic yeah. cost is just huge. Yeah. We looked hard at trying to figure out how to commercialize or share or distribute or something our own mm -hmm. Fornoy tree map code. And it was just, yeah, it's... Hard to get would, running in the general case, right? Yeah. It was hard to get running in any specific case. The code just <laughs> wasn't all. all that stable. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. But you know what? My theory is there's sort of a structural problem there in a sense mm -hmm. that it doesn't make a good paper. And papers are what you should write as a researcher, right? That you got something to run in the general case, actually. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is not something where you can write a nice paper about. And so I, my feeling is there are a lot of, let's say, 80% solutions in this area. And then the last 20% that are so hard to achieve to actually make it a usable implementation, they, they don't necessarily happen. Fair enough. I think that during this interview, we're probably going to mention the name of Jeff Hare a couple times. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we had him on the last, uh, last time on the show, so uh, right. he's still fresh in our minds. Yeah, yeah. Precisely because he has been very accomplished, I think, yeah. in figuring out how to publish and get people talking about system design and algorithms and getting people to sort of and getting publications out there mm -hmm. on things that he's built and things that people can use yeah yeah and he said something good last time as well um that this feedback you get from people actually using it is driving his research as well so it's not just you know you're doing work for somebody else or so but he sees it very much as being just in a in a very active dialogue with people using his framework and thus getting new ideas for doing research and this is how how it works for him and I think that's so great yeah I totally agree yeah. and that perhaps does bring us to the InfoViz industry track yeah absolutely yeah can you tell us more about the industry track what's the idea yeah I'd be delighted to um, last year at InfoViz I saw a number of different people walking around. Sorry, Daniel, before before you proceed, can you briefly tell, uh, explain what is this week and InfoViz? Oh. Because some, some listeners might still not know it. So oh, absolutely. I think if you can briefly introduce it, it, it would be better. Sure thing. VizWeek, as the name implies, is a full week of visualization. It's an annual conference, uh, travels around the world, uh, I believe it's scheduled to go overseas in the next few years, um, where people get together and talk about information visualization, visual analytics, and and uh, scientific visualization. There's five days of sessions, four days of sessions, plus two days of uh, workshops and tutorials beforehand. There is also usually a couple of accompanying um, side panels and uh, special sessions. So I believe that we have visualization security this year and BioViz for biological visualizations. Historically, it's an academically oriented conference, which means that most of the talks that are given are oriented towards giving academic papers that have been peer reviewed and published. 
and we can talk a little bit about what it takes to get a paper through the peer review system later. <laughs> but there's... Do you really want to do that? <laughs> that would be extremely boring. <laughs> No, I think it can Perhaps. be interesting if you're not familiar. No, okay. familiar. Perhaps no, not joking. in detail. I'm joking. Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it also has, however, a series of tutorials and posters that are meant to be works in progress and interesting application stories and a lot of other material. And basically, this is, as far as I can tell, the single densest place where lots and lots of visualization people get together every year and talk about what they feel are new and exciting in information visualization. From an academic point of view, uh, the overlap with conferences like IO that was earlier this year is actually surprisingly small. Um, although there are certainly some names that you're going to see at both. Um, last year at VizWeek, I was talking to a number of people from industry who had also come in for one reason or another. And many of them were very excited about the conference. They really liked the things they were learning and they were finding talks that they went to that made them go, hey, wait, there's something I can do. There's something that I can share with my team. It's talking to a guy, for example, from a text analytics company. They do legal document analytics. Uh, you feed in a lot of documents and it helps you analyze the connections and interconnections between them. And he was eating up everything that he saw in graph drawing and he was eating up everything that he saw in text analysis and taking lots of notes and is realizing there's lots of opportunities out there for people in industry to learn something from the Viz, com from the Viz community. At the same time, I was also seeing that People like Amanda Cox was a uh, speaker this year. A couple years ago, we had someone else from the New York Times, uh, Matt Erickson. And both of them had really been extremely influential to the InfoViz community. After they spoke, we started seeing a lot of people wanting to talk about how visualization can be applied to more types of people, um, how visualization can be used for storytelling and how visualization can be used for journalism. Um, and this tended in turn to spin up new workshops and there was papers on storytelling and there was papers on newspaper visualization. And I was realizing that a lot of visualizers are, a lot of academics don't have great access to knowing what the interesting problems that are out there are. Also because it Absolutely. has diversified so much, you know. So, yeah, you, you mentioned a few of these groups already, like the data journalists, the business intelligence people, uh, designers, artists, you know. Then we have this whole scene of people doing infographics, you know, which has really exploded in the last few years. And uh, I think that the field has diversified so quickly that, of course, it's hard to catch up with that. I think we, are, we all have trouble with that. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of opportunity between the uh, groups to sort of begin to talk a little bit more. So this year at VizWeek, we're trying to actually build a concentrated, directed intent for an industry track. We are, the industry track is going to be material that's oriented towards practitioners or oriented towards academics who want to learn about issues that drive practice. What we're hoping is that the sorts of people who are out there and being paid to build visualizations will be able to come out and share the challenges and share the questions that they have. 
and the academics will be able to learn from them, will be able to teach them, and will be able to share lots of ideas. This year is a particularly good one because the conference board is actually heavily filled with people who, like me, sort of sit in between multiple worlds. We've got Frank Van Ham as the industry chair. He's from IBM. He used to be from IBM Research, but he's actually moved over to a product group. The conference is being uh, generally organized by the team from Pacific National Labs, which is a government industry group. Um, and the uh, exhibits chair is uh, from Microsoft Research also. He's uh, Stephen Drucker. And so with all these people from industry, we have a real opportunity for the industry people to stand up and talk a little bit about what their needs are. And we're hoping that we can get this sort of rolling as a conversation between the two populations. That's, that's fantastic. So what, so what does track mean? Is it like in parallel to the rest of the program or is it like uh, the days before, the days after? How, how does it relate to the rest of the, the conference programs? It's, it's mostly going to be in parallel. Mm -hmm. uh, we are fortunate enough to be at a rather large hotel this year. And so some of the, uh, sorry, some of the size constraints that VizWeek has had to contend with in the past won't be quite as much of an issue as they have been, although we're still going to make some tough decisions. There's always much more material than we want to sh that we could show than we're going to be able to. Mm. Nonetheless, throughout the duration of the conference, there's going to be a track dedicated to additional material. Much of that, not all of that, is going to be industry-focused or things that we believe that come from industry. Uh, right now, as we speak, the workshops, panels, and tutorials chairs are evaluating the workshops, panels, and tutorials that they were sent. Some of those are going to be referred over to me as the industry chair, and I'm going to work with the conference chairs to try to assemble a program of material that's uh, particularly interesting. We're able to put out as a teaser that uh, first piece of material, the, uh, special, the InfoViz special session, the Tales from the Trenches session. Uh, this is going to be a panel or what? That's going to be a panel where okay. we've gone out and invited four different people whose day jobs are creating visualizations to talk about what the major issues that they run into when they build their visualizations um, and to talk about how they do it. So we've got a guy from Bungie who uh, is going to be talking about the work that he's done to watch how players play the online games like uh, Halo 3 and Halo Reach. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, Kim... We've got Kim Reese from Periscopic who's going to be talking about some of their work with uh, non-profits. We've got uh, Jason Alcock from Aperture. They're a medical marketing company and I happened to meet him at a Seattle visualization meetup and he, he was there because he really wanted to talk about how they're going to deal with this problem of uh, medical marketing is completely changing. A number of years, not very many years ago, it was a field where you knew people by handshakes and where people flew all over the country shaking hands with as many doctors as they possibly could and then trying to sell them products. Yeah. They're now trying to apply modern marketing techniques and the field is becoming a data-driven field. And when you become a data-driven field, you need to find ways to share that information, present that information, analyze that information. 
And we've got Lori Williams from Tableau, who's actually going to talk about how people use Tableau Public to share and explore their own visualizations. So between those, I'm hoping that one, this gives industry people a sense of how other people are solving problems, and it gives academics, as we've been saying, a sense of the diversity of problems out there and more of the different types of approaches that they could be taking to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. address visualization challenges. Yeah. In my experience, I think these types of things are great also for helping. So often you have inside organizations, people really excited about visualization, but they, they have trouble maybe convincing the rest of the, you know, of, of the company. And it can help a lot if you can then really pinpoint to, okay, they are doing it like this. And here's our competition. They are using it as well in this way. So alone mm-hmm. this, this whole awareness of this, this whole, um, uh, how much it can be used or how much it is used already uh, can be so so valuable. Yeah, the, and that's the, just such a simple thing, right? Just the to show, temp- show and tell, basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The template that I've given to all three researchers or to all four speakers is something like um, what's the right phrasing? We had a business problem. We collected data. We created a visualization. We made lots of money. So (laughs) hopefully what you're going to see is some very concrete stories of the real results. Not we explored the data and it was interesting, but we explored the data and it taught us a thing that was actionable, that allowed Mm, us to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. So, Daniel, let me ask you something. So if any of our listeners are people coming from industry and they are still doubtful whether to attend this week or not, what do you think? Let's try to do make some, some kind of advertisement. What's the main reason why should they should come to this week? Uh, they should come to this week first uh, to be educated and to learn. They're going to see the newest and the most interesting new visualization techniques out there. Uh, many times they're going to be wrapped in papers that have material that they're not as interested in. But if you just sort of like watch the slides and... Uh, swing through the talks, you're going to be seeing where the cutting edge is. You're going to have a chance to meet those researchers and direct their research agendas so that over the next few years, the questions that you ask will become the research agendas. And for people who are in organizations that are trying to build their visualization teams out, you're going to be in a place where the hottest and most interesting graduate students are beginning to finish up and we'll be looking for jobs. So there's going to be fantastic opportunities for recruiting. Sure, sure, sure. But do you think that right now, so from your experience talking with these people from industry, do you think there is a mismatch between what's the main focus of researchers and what and what are the main needs of these people? Mismatch is a strong word. I do think that the questions that researchers ask are not always directly applied and I'm okay with that but I but it's certainly the case that researchers have traditionally not really known how to communicate their work very well to uh, the industry and vice versa and I think that's really a shame I think that there's differences in the way that academics think about what visualization is about and what it's for because they're not trying in the end to make money and uh, practitioners in the end are trying to build their visualizations so that they can do something else. Yeah, sure. Mm. 
sure. maybe um, maybe also to draw attention a bit to the fact I mean industry I can see how how industry is a good word for applied <clears throat> use of visualization but um, maybe to also mention that a lot of the really interesting work is coming from much smaller organizations these days or maybe individuals and so um, I can totally see why a big company could send somebody to Wisbeek but I know that for instance um, going to Wisbeek is a big thing um, for individuals if they have to pay it on themselves right and this is maybe one of the, the, the things already where let's say in standard academia the assumption is your organization pays for you you know to mm -hmm. go to the conferences and maybe your company might pay for you if you're lucky enough to be with, with yeah. <laughs> who is there with my Google. son oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I was just wondering if it's mine or yours this time it's mine yeah. <laughs> I think last time we had yours or two episodes ago yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, just um, Daniel do you have any thoughts and how we could make it easier, let's say, lo lower the threshold for people to get maybe get addicted <laughs> 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 by, by providing some, some easier, you know, access than the... I mean, I think at the moment it's more like either you pay the... How much is it? Like $800 or so? And mm -hmm. then you're there for the whole week, but there's no big chance of, let's say, just checking it out for, for one day or something like this. I don't recall. We talked about a day pass, but I don't know whether we've got mm -hmm. one. Yes, there in fact is a single day and a two day registration available for the conference okay, at so, yeah. much more reasonable rates. Mm -hmm. If you are a, uh, if you plan ahead a little bit, you can get in for a single day for three hundred dollars for two days for six hundred, which is still not great, but is a whole lot better. Yeah. I would if the there were, for instance, some events on that that could be interesting for for the special type of people, you know, and they would be bundled mm -hmm. around two days or one where you could just yeah drop by we're, and discuss with others and and you know uh, I think these yeah. things might really help because for me I n I never went to Wisbeek although I'm really interested but practically it's like it's a week of hotel it's a it's a big flight mm -hmm. plus eight hundred dollars suddenly you're like into thousands of euros and if you yeah. pay that yourself you're, you're really thinking about hmm, should i do would, that right? would it be different for you if the conference would be in europe uh, maybe, may, maybe. The, i mean the travel the, is already a big part of course yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. of course yeah moritz on the one hand i totally see where you're coming from and it is pricey on the other hand uh i'd point out that in many ways uh while it seems expensive this is a screaming deal um I was looking at conferences like the O'Reilly Strata Conference. Strata is O'Reilly's big industry-oriented conference. It's mostly education-oriented sure. as well as sales. Uh, in fact, my fiance is very excited about going because she's a data analyst at a Seattle area game studio. <laughs> And one of the things that I overhear people being really excited about Strata is the fact that 10 to 20% of the talks are about information visualization. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of speakers who they get every year to come in and talk about what InfoViz is and what it can do. And those speakers are really good. I mean, they're great choices. You're going to pay two to $3,000 for a week of Strata. And at that time, you're going to get 20% topic, uh, 20 information visualization. Mm -hmm. So there's a pretty strong argument that while it's pricey, it it's actually a really good deal if this is what you're interested in. 
But I totally see where you're coming from, and I do understand that that can be a tough trade-off. Yeah, yeah. If you're in the Seattle area, we are going to attempt to have an industry reception one of the nights where people from around town and people who are able to make it into town can come in, perhaps at least peruse some of the posters and get to talk with academics about important issues for industry. Mm-hmm. Sort of a combination of a meetup and, a, and an industry event. Yeah, I think that's that's a great idea because many of these people, you know, they might buy the full ticket next year. You know, when once they see how much is going on and and you know get excited about it, then. But I think you need some some low threshold way of of getting people into it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the policies of this week is that if you are an organizer, if I remember well, if you organize either a workshop or a panel or a tutorial your registration is free. Am I correct, Daniel? Um, Should be something like that, right? I don't know if it's free. I believe that there is... There is at least a reduction. There is definitely a fee reduction for being an organizer. And uh, for some of the invited speakers, they're able to arrange discounts. Although not all. if If you live in the US, you are not too far from where the conference is organized and you manage to have a panel or something similar accepted, this might actually come down to a few hundred dollars, right? Absolutely. But you're also but, investing a lot of work in making the conference Yeah, happen, sure, right? sure, 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 sure. Yeah. But you're also going to, the, to probably the top event in the field. So it's, right. Yeah. In the end, I don't think it's about, it's necessarily about the money so much as, as Moritz was pointing out before, it's a week of your life. Yeah, and sure. if you're Moritz, it's a week of your life plus a couple of overseas plane flights. And that's a difficult decision. Uh, what I'm also hoping is that we're going to be able to work with podcasts like this <laughs> and some of the bloggers who are out there reporting on this work to try and disseminate a lot of these discussions out there so that even if you're not able to make it into the room for the conference, you're still able to share in some of the great stuff that's going on. Ah, Enrico, we should transmit live from this week with, with a big microphone. <laughs> yeah, we always try to do things like that, but we never yeah, manage works. to do it. I mean, we tried already two, two or three times. It was like, hey, I'll go there and we'll make some interviews. And then, oh, yeah, I ate too much. I drank too much. I couldn't do it. And it's sort of, it, the yeah. difficult thing is really when you pull out the microphone, you know, the conversation changes, of course. So If, yeah, yeah. if any of our listeners <laughs> volunteer for doing that, I wouldn't argue you against it yeah, yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah i mean i i tried to do it several times now and i never managed to do it really really hard <laughs> um yeah what else i wanted to say something yeah i wanted to say maybe moritz i will ask this thing to you so so far we have been talking about how conferences academic conferences like this week can attract more people from industry but i think the other way around is interesting too so how can Events like IO or similar things like Z, uh, Z plus, C plus, what's the right position? Mm-hmm. I don't know. C plus. C, yeah, the C conference, C, and we did the C yeah, plus workshop or, as or a satellite. Even, yeah. even mm-hmm. Strata itself, how can we? How can we make sure that people from academia attend this kind of conferences or mm-hmm. are invited in this kind of conferences? Because as far as I understand, there is a very, very small overlap, if any. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. There, there is a certain... Um, so I, I also think there could be really interesting like 
it could be nice to have a few like seasoned Infobis uh, researchers speak at these conferences as well. But uh, because the communities are not that well connected, maybe um, maybe the awareness is not there like that these people exist and what they're doing. I mean, you have some, let's say, exemplary figures like Martin Wattenberg or Jeff here again, or so who are known in both scenes. But um, you're right, it's it's a small. There is a small um, overlap only, and I mean, we had Andrew Vandemere speak at C conference uh, in in Wiesbaden, so that was nice. And he also like reported a lot on academic research in information visualization, especially about persuasive visualization. Um, but um, yeah, traditionally, um, uh, these conferences are much more design focused and much more practical. Um, but what do you think is the problem there? Is it more that the organizers just don't don't know these people, or they think they are not the right people for speaking at at these kind of conferences? Or what do you think is the main reason behind that? Um, I mean, it is two different worlds, and an academic um, talk is a bit different also than maybe a, a design conference talk, right? So there, there, there is already a, di a different style of presenting ideas, of, of talking about your work. Uh, uh, it, it is two different worlds, after all. I, I th but I do think that there could be really... Um, sometimes it can be so good to learn about that other world and see how people think in that area and and apply that back or refer that back to your own practice right i mean that's that's always when the the big learning happens i think when you talk to somebody from totally outside your field and then realize the commonalities um, yeah. i think it's more an awareness issue uh, mm -hmm. maybe there might be like also certain prejudices i mean of course, the organizers of these conferences, they have never been to Wisweek. I mean, you have never been to Iowa as well, probably. And so, you know, so the, it, I think it all starts with being in the same room at the same time and just learning about, you know, the, the personal dimension. And, yeah, and, but maybe, you know, oh, so sorry. it's mostly about awareness, I would say. I think a lot of it is awareness. I think part of it is the way that different people communicate, uh, with the exception of the speakers who you saw at I.O., most of the VizWeek academics don't know to or don't choose to publicize their work very much online. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so you're not necessarily finding out they exist. They're not in sort of the prominent part of that dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I think that finding ways for academics need to be reminded to talk about these issues. Yeah. I mean, Very you rapidly, are, you we start are present in InfoWiz at the moment for many people. If you appear on Flowing Data or if you appear on InfoStatics, right? And uh, and a lot of academic research does not pop up there because I don't. Know, yeah, that, that's a good question. Maybe why why it doesn't? Because many many things could could be shown there. Mm. Probably. Is it more like researchers don't really care about these these platforms, or don't they know well. about them? Or? In a way, I think it's a matter, it's a little bit of a cultural matter. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that as far as I can tell, there are not strong incentives, or at least there hasn't been any strong incentives so far for an academic to, to really reach out to, to these people or having, a, for instance, a strong presence on the web. Mm -hmm. So I think I think this pretty much correlates with uh, having a strong presence of the, on the web. So if you take, for instance, Robert Cosara, he mm -hmm. has a strong presence on the web and he's oh, yeah. invited mm -hmm. 
is invited in this kind of in this kind of conferences. Mm. And the interesting thing is, again, he, he was person. he was also a judge at Malofier at the Infographics, you know, mm -hmm. Designers yeah, Award, exactly. and yeah. and I think this is solely because he has a blog, and and people know him from that blog because he he writes a lot there, and he's very active in the discussion, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And then but the, the I, contrast I mean, might maybe be the researcher where you, I see, oh, he's written like 100 papers, but I click three of them, and they're all behind like a paywall <laughs> at IEEE <laughs> or ACM. I, I mean, I do have an ACM account, but I don't have an IEEE account. And so I can't even see what they're working on, basically, because, you know, mm. I just see the paper titles. I mean, that might be sort of the maybe the, the strong contrast there. So I have two comments here. One of them, I totally agree with what you're saying about paywalls. The open access discussion is one that's actively happening on all levels, including even the very highest of IEEE. One thing I can say to the COSARAs of the world and everyone else is that both IEEE and ACM give you permission, give individual authors permission to put their own articles on their own website. So it should be the case that with a few minutes of searching around the internet, you should be able to pretty rapidly find most of these. Now, if Kosara isn't putting that up, that's really unfortunate. And, you know, we should go yell at him because he should because he should be making that information available. He's got the legal permission to, and it's definitely something that should be shared. The other side, you were asking about why academics aren't doing a better job of self-promoting. The story that I hear from many academics is that their major concern is justifiably getting tenure. Mm -hmm. And to do that, they are rewarded mainly for publishing in prominent journals and works that are well cited. So they don't necessarily see a direct virtue to showing up at IEO or even being an invited speaker. Mm. That's then more a hobby But activity I, in case you do it, right? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Tell you yeah, from, I can see that. Sorry, I can tell you from my experience that I think this might change or is already changing. I had the chance to talk with Robert some time ago. Mm -hmm. I actually asked him uh, a question that is very much related to what we are discussing here. I actually told him, so I am applying for a, num for a number of positions and I really don't know if I should even mention my blog. And he told me, you know, for the fact, so uh, he, he himself was surprised about that, but he told me that during his tenure uh, process, Many of the many of the people who were contacted for the tenure process, they actually mentioned the blog itself, his blog, ah, and this mm -hmm. was part of the reason why he got uh, his tenure. Hmm. So I think that not necessarily the fact that so far this hasn't been a main uh, uh, component of the tenure process, it doesn't mean that it cannot become. Uh, uh, um, at least one small part of the tenure process itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so you're saying academia is starting to respect these these uh, of course you will external never get activities because, because you have a yeah. blog. Stop. Right. <laughs> I have twenty <laughs> thousand subscribers. That is not going to happen. <laughs> But at the same time, it could be an additional component, as yeah. far as I can tell. Yeah. And um, and me myself, I've been presenting my work in a number of universities during the last few months. And I always try to mention at the end of my talk, 
um, my blog and some people came to me and said, oh, that's cool. Or some other people said, oh, yeah, I saw it a couple of times and that, that post there was interesting or stuff mm. like that. So mm. I think if used in an intelligent way, it could be an additional tool in the toolbox. So not necessarily you need it. It's not, necess it's not something that you cannot live without, but it could be an interesting component. And I imagine this could become more and more powerful in the future. I think the future image of a good researcher should be that it's also one that um, is very active in disseminating his work. I, I, you know, or, I mean, it's not for everybody. I mean, some people are really just good at sitting down in a dark room and thinking, you know, and then some other people do better the, you know, the, the, let's say, disseminating the results. But I think in general, I think that should be, yeah, should be one of your, part of your job as a researcher. Like, Yeah, I personally think, I don't know, maybe this is going to be a bit off topic, but I personally think that, so there are so many researchers around the world today that marketing yourself and your research has become mm. a really, really important part of your research, of your research, Already, right. your research yeah, yeah. activities. Yeah. I don't know, Daniel, what, what's your take on that? I would love to see that better rewarded or for academics to perceive it as better rewarded. Um, I agree with yeah. you that underneath it probably is in fact very valuable it builds up reputation it means that you're going to get a stronger tenure letter in the end it means that more people are going to be talking about your work but i'm not sure that academics necessarily perceive that as being val career valuable yet mm -hmm. and i think one of the things that i'm kind of hoping actually coming out of again not to be a one-trick pony but one of the <laughs> things that i hope comes out of this industry track is a better awareness of the potential impactfulness. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who don't know that InfoViz actually, you know, is solving real problems for real people. And hopefully they'll get a better sense of, hey, wait, if I do this right, I'll impact people's lives. They'll want to talk about it. They'll want to talk about me. You're going to see more of me. And yes, it'll help my academic career or it'll help me in industry or we're going to have more conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a unique feature of visualization that maybe distinguish it from other areas of computer science. The fact that we have the, in principle, we have the power of developing something that in a matter of hours can have an impact on, on, on real people. So you create something, you publish it on the web, and after a few seconds, you might have people using it. And this is pretty unique, I think. Mm -hmm. But I, I find it interesting again because um, one thing I was always, or what I had trouble with, I, I, I used to have an academic career, I should mention, but one thing I had trouble <laughs> with was the fact that I think a paper is a bad representation of the thing you're actually researching, right, mm. in, in our field. So in, in some fields it might be really perfect and nice, but... I, in our field, you know, you always have these tiny screenshots printed in black and white, and and actually the main thing is the demo or the or the prototype, you know, which you have to ideally first understand and use before you even read the paper. But it's so detached from the from the text, you know, it's somewhere on the web if you're lucky, still there, you know, years afterwards, and. This would be great too if there were some, I don't know, it's, it's so hard to change these things, but if there were like new forms of publication in, in interaction design or in, or in, um, in visualization research. Yeah? 
right. where you could more tightly, you know, connect the, the thing you're actually working on with the the documentation and so on. Yeah. I totally agree. It's a little silly at this point for us mm -hmm. to be publishing things as two column PDFs when that <laughs> just doesn't correspond well no to hyperlinks. anything people Yeah, do. it's 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 amazing, but yeah. Yeah. But that's a much bigger academic discussion yeah, than we I think is that today, looking probably. on Waterworld. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and these things, they do take time. And, and I know there's a lot of things happening, especially around open access and, and more lightweight publishing formats and so on. But yeah, but I think at the moment, it's still one of these things that, you know, in academia, you're very used to that. If, if you're out of this world, you suddenly find that a bit strange that you would be working with these huge documents that nobody can access and so on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that don't show yeah. up on Google properly, and, uh, yeah. like a blog post, yeah. So uh, another thing I would like to ask you is, so we, we mainly talked about using events like this week or IEO as a, as a way to let uh, academics and practitioners meet. What, what else can we do? So can we put in place other strategies to to increase the communication between these these people? Well, I'm delighted that there's things like, you know, a podcast out there where people without pictures talk about visualization. But it's <laughs> <laughs> quite a stunt, isn't it? <laughs> I must confess we were quite scared at the yeah, beginning. We, we already <laughs> forgot that this is a, this might be an issue. In the beginning we were like, ah, oh, this won't work. <laughs> but then we did it nevertheless. So it but it really does seem to work and I think you've yeah. got a lot of good discussions happening here. So I think that projects like this, where you in fact are living out that disconnection between two, or that connection between two groups, is fantastic. I'd love to sort of think about other ways. I think that part of it is I'd like to see academics doing a better job of promoting their work and talking about what they're doing. Uh, it's going to be a bigger trick for industry people. Uh, if you work, if you're an independent practitioner, Like Moritz, you can go out there and say, hey, here's a visualization I created last week. Take a look at it. But if you're laboring away at, you know, SQL Server, you don't necessarily get to share the day-to-day -day things that you've been working on, the cool new features, until SQL Server comes out and you're like, hey, here's yeah. the thing that we built over the last two years. Yeah. And many enterprise things you cannot show at all. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes it harder, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... Um Maybe another thing. So, Moritz, I wanted to ask you, I know for sure that you are one of those designers who are all, always aware or trying stay, to stay up to date to what, what is created and proposed in, in academic conferences, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you go about it? So you basically try to access the proceedings of the, of the latest conferences and then you try to to pick the, what, what really interests you. And I know you have a problem, or you mentioned before that there might, there might be an access problems because often these papers are behind some walls. And so maybe this is another, another problem we should discuss here, right? Yeah, I mean, you have to, if, if you're like hunting a lot and you know the names of the people, or if you go to their websites and so on, you, you might get lucky and, and they have a preprint published or something like this. but. If you don't have all the accounts that come with, let's say, a position in, in a university or, or 
a research lab, it's it's sometimes a bit hard, and sometimes you just hit a wall, like especially for older papers or something like that. Um, the other thing is, I'm I'm noticing myself. I'm reading less papers now that I've been doing a few years of practice. Um, this might just again be an awareness thing, or that the practical impact has been not that high. I'm not sure about that. But I always try to follow the the visualization research with respect to new algorithms or new techniques because I just find that exciting myself, you know. And sometimes you can actually you can use that in a project and and you know find exactly that one chart type or that one um, algorithm that uh, that works for that case. So I think that's just you know good practice to to know your tools. And the other thing is what I'm really always interested in is like perceptual laws and evaluations mm. of certain techniques where I would never have the time to figure that out, you know, or where nobody else has the time to figure that out. And it can be so great if then somebody from research sits down and really measures. Like, for instance, for me, this paper about the arrow directions, uh, like directed uh, edges in, in <laughs> graphs, <laughs> that was so enlightening. Uh, who, uh, was it... Um, was it Jack von Weick's department? I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think so ben too. Uh, yeah, exactly. And ben yeah. yeah, yeah. And this was so enlightening that, I mean, I always had this intuition that arrows might not be the strongest, you know, choice. And then I might pick some tapered edges, triangles or something like this. But mm-hmm. they actually went there to measure, like, how well these perform against each other in which situations, what the trade-offs are. And this can be so helpful also for your practice. Um, especially in like undermining or like feeding, you know, or putting something behind your intuitions or maybe also disappointing some of your intuitions, just learning how it works. But let me ask you something else, Moritz. So I was always be surprised by talking with you to to discover how, how well you know the research behind visualization by being a designer, by, by training and I might be wrong, but my feeling is that that's not common practice among designers. Am I correct? Yeah, I became a designer very late. I mean, I, I did study cognitive science first and and did work on a research project, which was about e-learning, but I did the visualization part there. So um, I think that's, that's a, it's kind of a strange career. Um, and many people who will come, let's say, more directly from the graphic design area they are not even used to reading papers, right? So at least I was used to that whole, how this whole citation, peer review, and so on thing works. And I also wrote a few papers, so I know what goes, how much work goes into a good paper and so on. But somebody who comes from directly from design school, they, 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 they don't know about this whole practice. And, and honestly, the first paper you read is terribly hard to read. I mean, you probably forgot mm-hmm. that by now, but it's terribly hard to read <laughs> if you don't know all the codes and all the, you know, the... The, the, the language. Of, yeah. The language, yeah. And, and it's sort of, you know, once you have read like 50 or 100 of them, you know, it goes very quick because they have these recurring structures. But if you haven't learned about that, it's, it's hard work. And, uh, yeah. So I think and for many people, that, again, there might be a high threshold just getting started into it because it's already so advanced, everything, and there are these sort of these practices established. And yeah, if you haven't like studied that for a few years, you might be scared off maybe or just yeah. have a hard time in, in getting into it. 
And another thing I would like to touch here is the fact that, Daniel, I don't know if you agree with me, but um, academics are normally in other fields those people who create strong textbooks from which people can learn the basic basics of the field. And I think one big gap we still have in visualization is the fact that we don't have the visualization book coming from, from <laughs> some academics, right? You mean the practical book coming from an uh, academic person, or uh, no, or the Bible? I mean, are you looking for the Bible, the the no, Wisp Bible? Not necessarily the Bible, but if you look <laughs> at the books that are around, so people doesn't learn visualization from books that are written by academics mm. mostly. Oh yeah, yeah, that could be. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to learn databases, you have two or three books in the market. If you want to learn data mining, you have two or mm. three books uh -huh, in the market, uh -huh. and these are. I might be wrong, but most, most of them are books written by people who are in academia. Right, That's right. not true in visualization. We are still lacking this, the book coming from, the, from some visualization academics who try to teach the basics of visualization. With perhaps the exception of like Colin Ware's very classic book on uh, oh, your perception book. issues. Yeah. I, I do agree that what I would actually do if you're trying to sort of learn basics of visualization is for now, skip the textbooks, go to, um, one choice would be uh, Jeff Hare's webpage, but there's a number of others. John Stesco has actually been collecting different people's lists of um, course notes. Mm -hmm. And so you can get every slide that Jeff Hare has ever put up in one of his classes, every slide that John Stasco has ever put up in one of his classes. And you can see both what the topic breakdowns are, what the major topics they talk about are, and also what the visualizations they use as exemplars are. I think that that's not quite a textbook level yet, but it's getting close to a mm. sense of... And you have all the pointers to the good stuff, right? Yep, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's and a great advice. Yeah. Links to all the readings. Mm. I don't know that anyone's gone through and sort of evaluated what the best subset of them are. <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a, but both Stasco and uh, Hare and oh god, there's a couple others. I don't have them offhand, but we can perhaps add them to the show notes today. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. I, I stored away a few of these lectures as well, and I can, yeah. I can look them up again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's start with those. Yeah, and I think Tamara Mansner is going to publish a textbook soon. Maybe oh, this yeah. one will make, will make a difference. <laughs> we'll see. But, <laughs> but, I, but I'm also not sure if the Get Started book does have to come from academia. I'm not sure about that. And I think, you know, like... That's more in the O'Reilly realm of things, or you know, in this very practical realm. Maybe that's all right, but you're right. There should be like one accessible starting point into into all the exciting research that's been done. And, but but probably I, I think the advice with the lecture notes or the, the lecture slides is a really good one because you have that right. immediate visual reference. You can flip them through, and it's, it, this could be a good start into the area. Yeah. Yeah. If you're just trying to get your head sort of. The other direction to go is perhaps skip textbooks, but things like um, the beautiful visualization co collection that came out last year, two years ago now. Um, things like 
you know, the first or second of the Tufty books. I wouldn't buy the whole pack. They, I think it's a little bit of a diminishing returns. <laughs> but certainly the first one for me really made me go, oh, wait, this is a way that we can systematically think about data and think about data mm. visualization. Sure. Yeah. But I do also agree that it would be really nice to see uh, some te- uh, more textbooks out there. All right, Moritz, you're a co-author in the uh, beautiful Viz book. So you've already flogged it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, that was just one chapter. <laughs> yeah, but that was a good one, I think, because it was like very like focused on case studies. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, a case study is, in fact, where research and... <laughs> and practitioning meets right. This is where you, like you describe, like how you solved a specific problem and you know what techniques you applied. And I, I, I like that format of a case study a lot. The case study also has a big tradition in design and makes a lot of sense also from a design point of view to document your work in case studies. And I'd love to see more of that. Or I always love when people write a case study or have a nice talk on how they solved one specific problem. So, Well, part of my hope with this industry track and some of the other materials, you know, VizWeek always has a handful of, they don't usually call them case studies, but they turn out to be talk, someone talking about a problem they're trying to solve and how they solved it. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I really like about the Visual Analytics Conference is that it seems to be even friendlier to those. Yeah. So I'm hoping there's a lot of places to go this year and watch people solving problems. Sounds good. Sounds I still good. haven't decided if I, if I can make it this year. Oh, man, I, I think I need oh, to decide. Come on, some, oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so much going on, you know. It, oh. I read Gregor is planning to go there. Yeah, I, I know many people are planning. So um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> ah. <laughs> you, are you going, Enrico? If you Enrico? don't go, you will regret. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a paper in? <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I, I'm still waiting for the final, final, ah, final okay. but decision. You're, that should be. You're hoping. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Should be fine. Um, Daniel, um, thanks a lot. Before finishing, I just wanted to ask you. If you want to tell us something about your most recent work, I know it's a little bit off topic with regard to the episode, but I'm curious about what you're doing in visualization or things related to visualization. I would love to have you mention this thing here. Sure, definitely. Uh, Just for the sake of reducing the gap between practitioners (laughs) and academics. (laughs) So actually, you know, as I live sort of in this gap between fields... um, (laughs) Part, as I was saying earlier, part of one, of one of the questions that I got asked a while ago was, so you've got a billion data points, what do you do with them? And I realized that the notion of big data is a really interesting one. In information visualization, we've often thought of big data as more data pixels than fit on screen. Call it a million, mm-hmm. right? Because, yeah. you know, thousand by thousand resolution or so. Uh, in the big data world, though, now they're talking about terabytes and petabytes things that not only don't fit in on screen or in memory, but don't even fit on the disk of a single machine. So you have to spread them out across a whole bunch of different servers. And so we've moved to this unfortunate world where queries take overnight sometimes to get a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a visualization person's perspective, this is sad. Uh, we certainly know that exploratory visualization is really the way you go <laughs> because the vast majority of visualizations that you create 
tell you you're looking at the wrong data. You should have mm. remembered that you coded zero to mean I don't have a person here, and so you need to filter those out, or you just found that there is no particular signal looking at the scatter plot of these two points of data, or in fact, nothing in particular does interestingly change over this field. The vast majority of data isn't interesting, and what we really need is techniques to spend uh, to look at as many different pieces as possible. So interactive visualization has allowed us to do that. We're very used to with Excel or Tableau or any other visualization tool we use to flip through dimensions rapidly, to try out different combinations, to see where the signal is. In the database community about 10 years ago, they started talking about this idea of incremental visualization, or sorry, incremental data and analysis, where you look at, say, the first million rows of your data, draw what you've got so far, then look at the next million rows, draw what you've got so far, and so on. You can even estimate error bounds on how good that is. What we wanted to do was essentially build the visualizations, put them in front of actual users, and learn something about what it's like to deal with data sets that are bigger than a human can possibly wait for the answer to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you're gonna find so on my webpage you're going to find a Kai paper that we published recently where we actually grabbed some real users and we fed them their data very, very slowly. And we looked at how rapidly they were able to make decisions, mm-hmm. whether they were able to use the data meaningfully, and how they responded to this idea of converging error bars and partial results. The short answer is they were able to use them, partial results made them very happy, and most of the distinctions that they were looking for were order of magnitude decisions. They didn't care about whether Mm -hmm. something's different by 1%. They compared about there's four times as many of these than those. And that's the sort of thing that you can do based on samples and incremental data very rapidly. Oh, that's really nice. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I agree. There's a big world of <laughs> opportunities and challenges in the whole big big data scene. I, I'm also now working on a project where the data changes all the time, right? And mm-hmm. this is also something not you're not used to. You assume you have this database and then the user changes something and this changes right. the view, but you the data is not supposed to change all the time, right? <laughs> and how do you deal with that? You know, you well, can't like... Yeah like change the picture the whole time maybe people want to concentrate on something and so on so it's uh, there's quite some some challenges there yeah sounds like yeah. the sort of thing that you should come to this week and talk to people about there'd be a lot of good ideas <laughs> Could be. if i get yeah, it done big data is such, is such a hot topic right now i mean it's really uh... I mean, the term is big, but also the topic is big. Sometimes I'm not sure if people who use the term, you know, mean the same thing across all fields or all scenes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it is, I mean, the hype is not, I mean, without substance because it is probably the big challenge today. But then again, I I think it's really interesting what you say about incremental or this preliminary (laughs) views that sort Mm -hmm. of start to focus much more over time once you collect the data. Um, But often I also think like maybe for visualization, not so much changes, but it's more on the data mining and the data collection and extraction side. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is where the, the big... Yeah, the, the, the really big uh, boulders are being moved around at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we're just beginning to see now the InfoViz field beginning to get their heads around some of those big data manipulation problems. Mm-hmm. Certainly when I talk to my colleagues, both in academia and in industry, 
I learned that 1% of the time is spent on drawing the visualization and 99% of it is spent on fighting with the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think Jeff mentioned the same thing mm-hmm. last time, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and often this was sort of abstracted away, right? Because uh, the final research paper just focused on that last bit. Yeah. Well, yeah. right. Maybe the future of visualization is not in visualization itself. <laughs> Interesting, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sometimes wondering if will there be a new chart type anytime soon? You know, it's and isn't or isn't the the more exciting part in combining now the existing techniques with exactly these advanced analysis techniques or um, sampling techniques and so on? Yeah. One of the things that I actually really treasure about VisWeek, I was digging through last year's proceedings to try and remind myself what sort of were coming, what sort of things were coming up, and you know I found everything from a paper by Hadley Wickham talking about how he's basically managed to unify the notion of what a stacked bar chart is with a tree map with a mosaic plot so that he could essentially just parameterize them and they and this in turn generates an entire space of data visualizations yeah. out to people who are creating completely wacky new things. Uh, this team from Microsoft Research Asia building TextFlow, which sort of brings together stream graph and a little bit of Wordle and a little bit of other things, you know, uh, to very application specific visualization. There's this project called BirdViz, um, <laughs> which was specifically trying to build a suite of tools to manage and track bird app, uh, bird observations. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I like about it is that there are people out there who are pushing on the new chart types and the new linking types and the theory side and everything sort of in between because viz is this huge area there's a lot of opportunity absolutely yeah, and let, May, let maybe me i should that. go <laughs> go ahead. probably i should go i, I should go to this weekend probably yeah, yeah come on more yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's see <laughs> then let me say this to all our listeners out there: you should come to Visweek this year. You'll get a chance to meet Moritz in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> I will become the mascot. <laughs> Moritz, what was this email that we received? I received from this guy who said I met Moritz on the elevator. Yeah, and I had one I of these exci- exciting moments in my life. Yeah. The most exciting moments in my life. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that so was. If you come to was, this week, yeah, there yeah. might be a chance you meet Moritz. Stefan. In an elevator, in an exciting moment. Yeah. <laughs> he rides elevators, I'm told. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll see, we'll see. Um, data stories number 17 or something will report. Number, number yeah. <laughs> something yeah but i think just to to record uh a specific episode a special episode from this week if we are there together we might it won't work then then we need to drink wine and yeah yeah of course um okay i think we can stop it here yeah it was Uh, great unless there is anything you want to add and um thanks a lot daniel it was really, really nice having you on the episode. And thanks for sharing with us all the details about uh, the industry track and your work and all the rest. It's been really, really interesting. Um, yeah, that's all for now. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks. It was, was really great having you. Mm-hmm.
have to go. After my phone, no, my phone. It's fine. Okay. okay. Bye all. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.